chapter 12. I got my back up today. In 1914, a British author by the name of H.G. Wells predicted that World War I would be the war that would end all wars. Because, he said, it will usher in a new world order that would be led by new leaders who would be concerned for human rights regardless of sex, color, or creed. Was he right? Well, it was only 15 years later from the time of that prediction that Adolf Hitler became the chancellor who eventually brought about World War II. And since then, the world has seen numerous worlds, uh, wars that proved Wells' prediction to be nothing more than a positive sentiment. Now, I think you would agree with me, brethren, that the only way for the world, for this new world order to happen that A.G. Wells was hoping for, it would need that the source of all evil in the world would need to be eradicated. Would you agree with that? Well, today we're going to learn about a war that took place 2,000 years ago, indeed, that will end all wars. This war was a cosmic battle that took place between our eternal, righteous King Emmanuel with the enemy of God, the serpent of old, Satan himself, who is the source of all evil, deception, and murder in the world. This victory was so great that the enemy received a mortal wound to the head, leaving him with only a short time to live and limiting his power and authority. This indeed was the battle of the ages that will in time put an end to all wars and establish a new righteous world order. Now, just a brief review as to where we are in this book. Uh, chapter 11, we ended with the blowing of the seventh trumpet, followed by a celebratory proclamation from heaven in anticipation of God's final judgment and eternal reign uh, here on earth. But before we get into those events in history, John wants to prepare the believers then and now, and until the second coming of Christ, to know that there will be ongoing persecution so that we might face them with courage and faith. In chapter 12, he starts out with redemption's history. He takes us all the way back to the garden where the promise of the seed of the woman was given and shows us the fulfillment of that in Christ our Lord. He then takes us backstage to show us who are the real enemies of God's people. We're going to be introduced to a, a cast of characters. It's like a play, a drama play, as it's unfold, showing us from the beginning how God had promised, made this promise in the garden, and how throughout the ages there's this enemy of God who is seeking to thwart this promise from being fulfilled. And so, uh, Satan is introduced to us, and as we will see, that serpent of old. And uh, uh, then in chapter 13, we will learn more about his allies who carry out his wicked schemes on the earth. 
This chapter consists of three scenes. One, in the first scene, we have the woman, the dragon, and the male child. The second scene, we uh, see Satan defeated and cast out of heaven. And the third scene, uh, we see Satan persecuting the woman and her offspring on the earth. Verses 13 to 17. Now, before I get into the exposition, let me just say on the outset, as with most of the book of Revelation, there are various uh, interpretations of this and, and applications. Uh, some of our futurist brethren see this chapter as a marking the halfway point of the tribulation in the time of the sounding of the seventh trumpet. Uh, they also see the entire story as a reference to the judgment of ethnic Israel, their preservation and redemption at the end. And they would uh, cite verses like Jeremiah 23, 3, 30, verse 3, Ezekiel 34, 11, and so on, uh, which speak in particular of restoration. Uh, the male child, of course, is Christ, as already indicated, as will be indicated in verse 5. And once he is taken up to heaven, they, the brethren who interpret, interpret this way immediately see the narrative shifting to the last three and a half years uh, period before Christ's return. The woman fleeing to the wilderness and being sustained three and a half years, they see as believing Jews who flee Jerusalem and her seed who, whom Satan makes war against, they see as ethnic Jews who are either still living in Israel or around the world, but who are refusing the mark of the beast. So I say all that right on the outset. I don't want anybody to feel slighted. I'm aware of different positions, but as I've been stating all along, my focus as it's been throughout uh, the exposition is to draw out application for us as New Covenant believers that are consistent with the New Testament teachings. As I said in the past, the book of Revelation is written for believers throughout the ages. It is a timeless book. We are not to limit its application to the saints living just before the return of Christ. In any case, whichever your view may be, I pray that you can find some benefits from today's teaching. So now that's behind us, let's jump in. Look with me at Revelation chapter 12, verse 1 and 2. And a great sign appeared in heaven, a woman clothed with the sun, with the moon under her feet, and on her head a crown of twelve stars. She was pregnant and was crying out in birth pains and the agony, in, and the agony of giving birth. Let's ask the Lord's help. Lord, we come before you as we consider this passage that is filled with graphic imagery, Lord, that can be very confusing. We ask for your help. We ask that we would lay aside, Lord, our prejudices and the way that we think, what we think about this. I pray that your Holy Spirit would be our teacher today, Lord. Please give me word to speak and give your people ears to hear. May you use your word to edify, build up your saints and to save the lost. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Now, as I mentioned, bear in mind, brethren, that John is giving us word pictures. We just need to interpret them correctly. The woman is all, who is this woman? So he tells us about this woman who's got, it, it's, she is, uh, appears in heaven, clothed with the sun, with the moon under her feet, and her head is crowned with 12 stars. Uh, the woman is glorious and radiant. The sun is a symbol of glory and the moon under her feet is a symbol of dominance and power. The crown is a, a, is a symbol of victory. The Greek word there is used as stephanos, which is a wreath that was given to those who win the race in, in the competing games. And the 12 stars represent the covenant, 12 covenant people of God at, uh, in the Old Testament, the 12 tribes. The woman here is a representative of the faithful Jewish messianic community from whom came the Messiah into the world. So there's your answer, brother. You asked me to tell you who the woman is. There she is. Uh, she, let me repeat that again. The woman here is a representative of the faithful Jewish messianic community from whom came 
the Messiah into the world. Brethren, here on earth, the church that is made up of true believers seems insignificant and open to scorn and ridicule, but from God's perspective, look at her. Look at her from God's perspective. She is magnificently glorious and exalted. And one day, brethren, we will shine like the sun in beauty and glory. You might be despised in the eyes of your unbelieving family members, but in God's sight, you are glorious and beautiful, as we see this woman is. The woman is about to give birth, and she cries out in her pain and, and travail, a picture of Israel in her agony, uh, longing for the long-expected Messiah to appear. In the same way, brethren, as we now groan, await for the coming of Christ, we see the evil all around us. We see the wickedness prevailing. And we say, even so, come, Lord Jesus. We long for Christ to come and return, establish His righteous kingdom on earth. And that is the burden and desire and the cry of all of God's people, especially those who are going through severe persecution at this time. Let us now consider who this child is. Before we get into the second scene, I want us to consider who this child is. In verse 5, it tells us, she gave birth to a male child who is, the, who is to rule the nations with a rod of iron, and her child was caught up to God and to his throne. It is clear here that there's no question, I don't think anybody argues about who this child is, no matter what your view on Revelation is. Okay, it is clear that the, this is speaking of Christ, who is the seed of the woman that takes us all the way back to Genesis 3.15, who would crush the head of the serpent. He's the messianic king that is spoken of in Psalm 2.9, who would rule the nations with a rod of iron. He's the one who ascended to heaven and sat on the right hand of God the Father on his throne to reign above every principality and dominion. So there's no question who the child is. The next scene we read about in verses 3 to 4 is John introducing us to the enemy of God. The, ant the antagonist. Here's the antagonist. We're going to see the, the, the protagonist and the antagonist. This one is, as we will be told here, let's look in verse 3 and 4. Another sign appeared in heaven. Behold, a great and uh, uh, red dragon with seven heads and ten horns and on his head seven diadems. His tail swept down a third of the stars of heaven and cast them into the earth. And the dragon stood before the woman who was about to give birth so that when she bore her child, he might devour it. Satan is pictured here as a great red dragon, a serpent with wings, with a, a, a crested head and destructive claws. He's cruel and vicious. He's red to symbolize his murderous nature. The dragon is so massive in size that its tail sweeps away a third of the stars of heaven and casts them down to the earth. These are believed to be the fallen angels that fell with him. The seven crowns on his head indicate his world dominion. They are not crowns of victory, but of authority and his presumptuous claim to rival the King of Kings and Lord of Lords. The ten horns symbolize his destructive power and strength. There is an allusion here to uh, Dan Daniel's fourth beast in Daniel 7.7, 7, which had ten horns, and Daniel described him as terrifying, dreadful, and exceedingly strong. Terrifying, dreadful, and exceedingly strong. We'll see in chapter 13 that the beast out of the sea also has ten horns, showing that Satan's earthly allies are, are like him, in their destructive power. 
Pharaoh in Ezekiel 29.3 is called the great dragon who troubles God's people. This dragon, of course, is Satan himself, the serpent who tempted Eve in the garden and brought about the downfall of the human race. Now, what do we see him doing? Well, he's standing in front of the woman to devour her child. The, the enmity between Satan and the woman's seed started back in the garden in accordance with this promise of judgment that God spoke in Genesis 3.15. I will put an enmity between you and the woman and between your offspring and her offspring. He shall bruise your head and you shall bruise his heel. And the rest of the Old Testament, brethren, is really nothing more than the, this uh, essentially the story of Satan seeking to destroy the promised seed. If we had time, we can trace his activity all the way from the murder of righteous Abel all the way to down to King Herod, who in vain sought to kill the infant child. Having uh, failed in his effort, he then... Uh, in his effort to destroy the infant child. So what does he do? Is He incites the Pharisees and Judas to put Christ to death, vainly thinking that his death would be the end of his mission. But alas, his death became the means of our redemption and the fulfillment of that promise in Genesis 3.15. After Christ's ascension and atonement, the woman flees to the wilderness for protection. I'll come back to verse 6, uh, six uh, once we get to verse 14 when John picks up the narrative again. Uh, but in the second scene, John sees a spiritual battle taking place in heaven where Satan is fighting to keep his position before God as the accuser of the brethren. Look with me at verses 7 to 10. So this is the second scene. The first scene is the woman giving birth, the dragon standing to devour the child. Now we see another scene in heaven where John sees this, this war that takes place between Michael the archangel and the dragon and his angels. Verse 7. Now war arose in heaven, Michael and his angels fighting against the dragon. And the dragon and his angels fought back. But he was defeated. And there was no longer any place for them in, the he in heaven. And the great dragon was thrown down, that ancient serpent who was called the devil and Satan, the deceiver of the, of the whole world. He was thrown down to the earth, and his angels were thrown down with him. And I heard a loud voice in heaven saying, Now the salvation and power and the kingdom of our God and the authority of Christ, his Christ, have come. For the accuser of our brothers... Father, our brothers, has been thrown down, who accuses them day and night before God. Verse 11, And they have conquered him by the blood of the Lamb and by the word of their testimony, for they loved not their lives even unto death. Therefore rejoice, O heaven, and you who dwell in, the, in them. But woe to you, O earth, and see, for the devil has come down to you in great wrath, because he knows that his time is short. John sees this battle in heaven between Michael the archangel and the uh, Satan and his angels. Uh, the devil and his angels are defeated and cast down to earth. Now how are we to understand this battle and the casting down of Satan? Mind you, these are spiritual forces, right? These are not physical. We're not talking about a physical battle. So what does John mean here? And what is this battle? Uh, one commentator explains it this way. That though John depicts this as military battle, it is essentially a legal battle between opposing councils where the loser has lost his defense and place in the court. So, the shouts of victory, brethren, give us clues as to how to understand this battle. In the first place, we are told in verse 10a, it says, 
now the salvation and the power and kingdom of our God and the authority of his Christ have come for the accuser of the brothers what has been thrown down. Where did we first see God's salvation, kingdom, power, and authority displayed? In the cross. And later, in Christ's resurrection and ascension to heaven. Colossians 2.15 tells us this. On the cross, it says, He disarmed the rulers and authorities and put them to an open shame by triumphing over them in Him. He overpowered the strong man. He took away his weapons. He stripped him of his power so that he is now helpless. Christ won a victory on the cross. And in his ascension, look to what happened. Verse uh, Ephesians 1.21 For he, he was raised up far above all rule and authority and power and dominion and above every name that is named, not only in this age, but also in the one to come. Through though Jesus' power and authority, brethren, we don't see now, we don't see this power and authority being displayed visibly in the world. But there's coming a day when they will be on full display for everyone to see. As Christ returns on the cloud of glory with his mighty angels to establish his eternal kingdom. This is called the inaugurated eschatology. The already and not yet. He's won the victory, but we don't see it in fully, uh, on full display as of yet. It's like that king that Jesus gave the parable. He, he was given this kingdom. He went away to a far country and came back again to receive the kingdom unto himself. Jesus is away, but he will come back again. And then everybody will have to give an account. The battle was already won at the cross by our righteous king. He's now awaiting until the number of the redeemed of the elect is complete. And he will then return to bring a full end to all of his adversaries. And the heavenly celebration is anticipation of Satan's full defeat and the establishment of the eternal kingdom. So from heaven's perspective, brethren, it's a done deal. Christ has won the victory, and it's only a matter of time when he will take possession of that which he has conquered. By way of application, brethren, we too need to have this heavenly perspective and live in the victory that Christ has accomplished for us in spite of our circumstances. Christ paid the penalty for our sin. He has defeated our enemy. He now reigns victorious in heaven, and he will come again to establish his righteous kingdom. Therefore, we, like those in heaven, ought to rejoice. In the second place, let us pray, brethren, that this year our King Jesus would manifest his power, his saving power and glory and authority over Satan by delivering many of our loved ones, many of those who we seek to reach for the Lord Jesus Christ, that the Lord would set them free from his dominion and establish them as children of the Heavenly Father. Let's pray, brethren, towards that end, that his power would be manifest in ways that yet we have not seen to deliver those who are in bondage to Satan. And if that is your desire, then join your brothers and sisters this year as we petition our King and assault the kingdom of darkness in our corporate prayer which we will be talking more about, God willing, uh, in our uh, annual meeting in February. A second clue that helps us to understand the defeat and casting down of Satan is found in verse 10b. We read the following. For the accuser of our brothers has been thrown down, who accuses them day and night before our God. On the, at the cross, Satan lost his defense and place in heaven. In the Old Testament, we read in two, in two places, in Job 1.6 and Zechariah 3.1, where Satan had access into the presence of God to accuse the believers. But now that Christ has made an atonement for our sin, Satan can no longer accuse us. 
Jesus makes, it, makes a beautiful reference to this in, in John chapter 12. In John chapter 12, verse 31, I should have given you that reference in your, I don't think it's in your handout, uh, but here's what it says. Jesus says this, Now is the judgment of this world. Now will the ruler of this world be cast out. And I, when I am lifted up from the earth, will draw all people to myself. Jesus envisioning what would happen when he is lifted up. What would happen? Satan will be cast out. When the ruler of this age will be cast out. He's not going to have any more opportunity to be able to accuse. His defense has been taken away from him. Christ's triumphs are depicted also in this holy war that we're reading about currently. So we could say with Paul in Romans 8.33, Who shall bring any charge against God's elect? It is God who justifies. Who is he to condemn? Christ Jesus is the one who died. More, more than that, who was raised, who is at the right hand of God, who indeed is interceding on our behalf. So brethren, Satan has been cast out. He cannot accuse us before God. Because Christ has redeemed us. He has paid the penalty. This leads us to our next point. Christ's victory over Satan is our victory. Look with me at verse 11. And it says, And they have conquered him by the blood of the Lamb, and by the word of their testimony, for they loved not their lives even unto death. Now when it said they conquered him, it means they conquered him with their courage and faith because they do lose their lives. They've conquered him with, his, with their courage and faith. They were faithful unto the end despite Satan's opposition. So what, what made them so courageous? The blood of the Lamb. The blood of the Lamb. By his death on the cross, Christ has taken away the weapons that Satan uses to scare us. And which are these two things? One, he uses the sense, the sense of guilt for our sins to condemn us and to, uh, to cause us to be fearful of judgment. He uses guilt. How dare you? Look what you've done. Your sin. You've sinned against God. You can't call yourself a Christian. Guilt starts setting in. How are you going to overcome that? The blood of the Lamb. Yes, you're right, Satan. You're absolutely right. And there's far more worse than that I've done. But I know one thing. I know one thing. As we're going to sing later, the battle is already won. You see, Christ has fought the battle. He's won the battle. He's paid the price. And we stand covered under his blood. This is the victory, brethren, that overcomes the world, overcomes Satan. In the second place, because we know there's now no condemnation to them that are in Christ Jesus. In the second place, he uses the fear of death. The fear of death. So first, he uses the guilty conscience because of our sin. Secondly, he uses the fear of death. There's a natural fear of death in every human being. Fear of the pain and suffering that is often associated with death. Fear of the unknown world on the other side. Fear of facing a holy God. But listen to this verse in Hebrews 12. I think, I don't know if I have it in your notes. Hebrews 12, 14. Hebrews 12, I'm sorry, Hebrews 2.14, rather, 2.14. We read the following. Since therefore the children share in flesh and blood, he himself likewise partook of the same thing, that through death he might destroy the one who has power, uh, the power of death, that is the devil, and deliver those who through fear of death were subject lifelong slavery, to a lifelong slavery. He subjects us to fear. If you don't know what's going to happen to you when you die, where are you going? What will you face on the other side? There's fear of anxiety. People are terrified of death. They're terrified. 
But Jesus has destroyed him who has the power over death. Our destiny is not in his hands. It's in Jesus' hands. We don't have to fear him. We know where we're going. Well, and we know what's waiting for us on the other side. We have a heavenly Father who's ready to welcome us home and a Savior who has gone to prepare a glorious place for us and who longs for us to be with Him. Remember His prayer, John 17, Father, I would those whom You've given me would be with me in glory that they may behold my glory which You have given me. So He longs for us to be there. There's no mystery here, brothers. There's no mystery what's going to come after here, after death. No, we know where we're going. We know who's waiting for us on the other side. So, the weapons that Satan used against us in the past to enslave us, Christ has destroyed in his death and in his resurrection. May we too be faithful unto the end and not succumb to Satan's threats. Now, let me just say a word here. If you're here without Jesus Christ, if you're here and you have uh, not turned from your sin and put your faith in Christ and your trust in Christ as your Lord and Savior, or if you're watching me online right this moment, as I know at least one person is, well, then you ought to fear. You ought to fear death. Because what waits for you on the other side is terrifying. You ought to fear it. Because you have no peace, you have no confidence what is on the other side. It is the holiness of God that you will be faced with. And stop thinking that somehow you're good enough. You're not. If you're not sinless, you're not good enough. You need a perfect righteousness to stand before a perfect holy God. God is not going to wink the eye. He's not going to sweep your, say, oh, you, you, you were bad, but that's okay. You weren't so bad. That's not how God operates. God didn't send His Son to die on the cross, His eternal righteous Son, uh, because you are a good person. He came and sent His Son because you and I are evil, wicked, and deserving of God's wrath. The only way to escape that is to put your faith in Christ today. Today is a day of salvation. You have no guarantee of tomorrow. Rest in Christ. Hope in Christ. He's your, only, he's your only hope for salvation. His righteousness, His blood, remember? It's His blood that covers us. Put your faith in Him and have the joy and the assurance of sins forgiven and know who's waiting for you on the other side. There'll be no guesswork at that point. You know what's coming. You'll be in the arms of Jesus. In the fourth place, Satan's casting out causes great joy in heaven, but brings havoc on earth. Look with me at verse 12. Therefore rejoice, O heavens, and you who dwell in them. And woe, but woe to you, O earth and sea, for the devil has come down to you in great wrath. Because he knows, what does he know? His days are numbered. He knows that he's got this mortal wound. He's been crushed. His head is crushed. It's only a matter of time that he's going to be destroyed. So what is he going to do? He's going to cause as much havoc as he can on earth. In heaven, there's joy because God's kingdom is coming. On earth, woe and sorrow, both in the sea as well as in the earth, will experience great distress. You see, Satan is not just out to destroy the church, but he hates God's image in humankind. He hates God's image. So he wants to corrupt the whole human race as he did in the days of Noah. Remember in the days of Noah? It says there was none righteous except one man. Eight people from all the earth. What happened to all the other ones? Corrupted. Corrupted. All the thoughts and intents of men's heart were corrupt from his youth up. He wants to break up the family. He wants to create chaos in the world. Just turn on the news and you'll see Satan's activity in the world. Civil unrest, mass shootings, terrorist attacks, wars and bloodshed. These, these uh, things have become so commonplace, brethren, 
that we, we no longer feel moved by them. Uh, we've become desensitized to these things. Sadly, sadly, because they've become so commonplace. Everywhere you turn in the world, there's some fighting, there's some bloodshed, there's some wickedness, there's some injustice somewhere. And, and this is the activity of Satan. So when you see these things, just remember who is the motivating force behind them. But Satan's real hatred is against the church, which Christ has purchased with his own blood. And seeing that he couldn't destroy Christ, he now turns his hatred and rage against the church. Look with me at verses 13 and 17. And when the dragon saw that he had been thrown down to the earth, he pursued the woman who had given birth to the male child. But the woman was given the two, uh, the two wings of the great eagle so that she might fly from the serpent into the wilderness to the place where she is to be nourished for a time and time and times and a half a time. The serpent poured water like river out of his mouth after the woman to sweep her away with a flood. But the earth came to help the woman and the earth opened her mouth and swallowed the river that the dragon had poured from his mouth. Then the dragon became furious with the woman and went to off to make war on the rest of her offspring, on those who keep the commandments of God and hold to the testimony of Jesus. And he stood on the sand of the seashore or sea. Now we continue, uh, John continues the narrative from verse 6 regarding the woman. Remember verse 6, we said, and the woman fled into the wilderness where she had a place prepared by God in which she is to be nourished for 1,260 days. Satan, having failed to defeat Christ, he now directs his attack on the women and her offspring, the believers. We saw uh, this in the, uh, in the early church, brethren. It says when Saul of Tarsus was breathing havoc, he was wreaking havoc, uh, in the church, we read in Acts 8.3, but Saul was ravaging the church and entering house after house. He dragged off women and men and women and committed them to prison. And in chapter 9, verse 1, but Saul still breathing threats and murder against the disciples of the Lord. But God turned his, this evil intent, Saul's evil intent, he turned it around and used it for the spread of the gospel. Because what happened? The believers that were scattered, it says they went and they started proclaiming and declaring the gospel. And then the church of Antioch came to birth. And they were the ones, ironically, Paul caused this, right? The church came to birth and it was the very church that sent Paul, Saul of Tarsus, sent him to the Gentiles as a missionary. You see the, the irony of God. It's amazing. Paul caused the dispersion. The dispersion created the church, and the church was the one that sent Paul to be a missionary to the Gentiles. Amazing. With the dragon's pursuit of the woman, we see an allusion here to the exodus in Pharaoh's pursuit of the children of Israel as they fled Egypt. Uh, the reference to the wings and, and being nourished in the wilderness uh, uh, is a reference to God's care over his people in the Old Testament. Uh, as, as he took care of them for 40 years in the desert. We read in Exodus 19, verse 4, You yourselves have seen what I did in, Ethiopian, in the Egyptians and how I bore you on eagles' wings and brought you to myself. The 1260 days are equivalent to the three and a half years of the persecution in which the two witnesses witnessed in 11.2 and also the years for which the beast will be allowed to blaspheme in 13.5. Now, it also corresponds, it's three and a half years. Remember how long uh, Elijah was in the wilderness and being fed by ravens and by the river there that God supplied his servant. He took care of him in the wilderness. So that's a reference to that as well. I've addressed in the past the, dif uh, the different views on the three and a half years, uh, so I won't uh, belabored a point. I won't repeat it here. I do agree, though, with one commentator on this point that John here 
is not trying to establish a chronology of events as much as to show the spiritual powers at work behind the persecution of believers whenever and wherever it occurs. And because he tells us, remember, they were Antichrist from the very time that the inception of the church, John tells us in 1 John 4, 3, the spirit of Antichrist has been in the world since the inception of the church, and it will certainly intensify at the end. Uh, I've been reading a, a book on the history of the church in Korea and uh, what happened prior to, from its inception, prior to the uh, communist takeover from 1907 when some of the first missionaries came and how God came down with a mighty outpouring of the spirit and then what happened when the communists came in 1948. I'll share more about that in my next uh, sermon because I think the, it's incredible the, uh, the analogy, the, tri the parallelism, thank you. And I'll, I'll get into that more then. But uh, it's, uh, wow. Satan had really established his stronghold, his headquarters, if you will, there. Uh, we'll get into that more. Over the centuries, Satan has tried to drown the church with the division, false teachers, worldliness, persecution, uh, but the Lord has protected her. It is true that many denominations have fallen to liberal and worldly ideologies. But there will always be faithful remnant, even as there was in Elijah's day. In Elijah's day, the church or the assembly of God's people had become so evil and corrupt. Elijah lost hope. He said, Lord, just take my life. Why should I be any better than my forefathers? Just take me. And Lord encouraged him. He says, no, Elijah, there's 6,000 that haven't bowed the knee to Baal. So we can be encouraged as well today, the Lord is always going to have his remnant. Even as the Lord said, those whom the Father has given me, I will lose none, but raise them up at the last day, John 6, 39. None of the elect will, will be lost because Jesus is inseparably united to the church. If you're going to kill the church, you're going to have to kill Jesus. And you know what? You can't. No way. It's impossible. He's Lord of Lords. He'll destroy you before you even think. Brethren, know that whatever trials you are called to go through in the desert of your affliction, God will not abandon you. He will be with you to sustain you through those trials. We have this wonderful promise from the Lord in, in Isaiah 43 too. When you pass through the waters, remember what, was, what did Satan try to do? Flood of waters against the women. When you pass through the waters, I will be with you. And through the rivers, they will not overwhelm you. Our God, our good shepherd, will be with us in the valley. Don't allow Satan to deceive you into thinking that God has abandoned you. He is a liar. Sometimes the enemy comes like a flood, brethren, to try to drown us in despair. Flooding our thoughts with fear, with anxiety, with anger, with lust, with envy, with unbelief, with doubt, with guilt, and so on. And they come like a flood, and they take over. And they want us to, what's the end? He wants us to fall into despair. He wants us to despair of any hope, lose hope, take our eyes off Jesus, and be consumed with these anxieties and fears and troubles. Resist him steadfastly in the faith. Raise up the standard of God's word against him and call upon your King Jesus, who is a present help in time of need. He has come to destroy the works of the devil. It tells us in 1 John. Resist the devil and he will flee from you. Don't give in. Don't play dead. Don't act like you have no one to help you. Jesus is at your side. He'll never leave you. He's there. Call upon the Lord. Let Raise up a standard against this enemy. The word of God, even as Jesus did in the, te in the, in the, in the temptation there in, uh, in, uh, 
uh, when he was being tempted for 40 days. The word of God, raise it up. It's the sword of the spirit that will veer off the enemy and resist him. The shield of faith and so on. Remember that greater is he that is in you than he that is in the world. We have a mighty ally living in our breast who's ready to fight for us against the enemy of our soul. The chapter ends with Satan at war with the saints. Look with me, verse 17. Then the dragon became furious with the women and went off to make war on the rest of, the, of her offspring, on those who keep the commandments of God and hold to the testimony of Jesus. And he stood on the sand of the sea. Mind you, who are those who are being fought against? I'd like you to take note of that. It says, those who keep the commandments of God and, be, and hold to the testimony of Jesus. These are believers. These are not would-be believers. These are believers. And, and he stood to destroy them. So we leave this third scene. Satan, as it were, the woman has been spared. She is taken off into the woods. She's being ministered to. He sends this water after her, this river, seeking to destroy her. The earth opens up, swallows the water. The woman is safe. Now, as it were, Satan is standing there. We're left with Satan standing. As it were, he is strategizing and thinking, okay, what's my next step? What am I going to do? And ex immediately, chapter 13, what do we see? There is a beast coming out of the sea and a beast coming out of the earth. And he's now have come up, he has plotted, he has made plans through these allies that he's going to be using in order to, in an effort to destroy the people of God. We'll get into that in chapter 13, so stay tuned. Let's now look at a couple of points of application. What should we learn? How should this impact us? What should we learn? One, seeing who's behind the evil in the world enables us to love those who are the enemies of God. You say, where do you come with that, Pastor? How is that possible? Well, listen. Jesus fully underscores this, uh, and that is why he was able to forgive his enemies who nailed him to the cross. What, did he, what was he seeing behind Judas. Who was it? It tells us Satan put this in his heart. Who was behind the Pharisees who were dogging him everywhere he went and seeking to uh, undermine his authority, undermine his mission, cut short his mission? And he would say, my time has not come. My time has not come. Who was it behind them? He tells us, you are of your father the devil and you're seeking to kill me. He knew who is behind all of this. And he could say, Father, forgive them. Father, forgive them. For they know not what they're doing. The relatives who is calling you names and won't talk to you because of your faith. Those progressive liberals who have hate, hate everything that is good and godly. Those terrorists who are blowing themselves up in a church and maim and kill people in the name of Allah. We can love them. We can love them because they are acting under the influence of the enemy of God himself, Satan. And we bear in mind, brethren, that we too would have been in their shoes at one time. But the grace of God delivered us. So that's point number one, is that we can love those who hate us, those who hate the gospel, because we know who's behind it all. Secondly, this calls us to vigilance. Satan is very active in the world. Remember, he said he's cast down. He's in here. He's, he's seeking to work havoc. He's very active in the world and even in the church. And his aim is to fracture our unity and to destroy our faith. We're not to be ignorant of his devices. Which, uh, uh, which can come in different forms. Listen to the forms in which he comes. All right. Uh, his opposition can come by way of persecution, causing us to doubt the goodness and love of God. 
or may come by way of peace and prosperity, causing us to, overcome, to become complacent and compromising with the world. Or it may come by way of false teachers. Remember, he's the great deceiver. He doesn't care what method he uses. He's not, he's not fastidious. He'll use whatever it takes. Oh, riches is what you want? It's that girl you want? It's that boy you want? Oh, it, you know, you have this great fear of dying. Well, I'm going to give you what's going to shake your faith. Remember what he did to how he shook Peter's faith to deny the Lord? He was afraid of dying. If he was to say, I'm one of them. Okay, Peter, go over there. You're next. He was afraid. So the fear of death gripped him and caused him to deny his Savior. Thirdly, so, uh, so let me just before I go on. Is, is, so remember that he's a great deceiver. Therefore, brethren, as Peter said, we must be sober and vigilant, knowing that our adversary, the devil, goes about roaring like a roaring lion, seeking whom he may devour. Thirdly, by way of application, this passage fills us with peace, courage, and hope. The battle against evil has already been fought and won. Our king has conquered and defeated Satan. Brethren, we're not living in a world where we are constantly fretting and wondering what is going to happen next. Who's forming an alliance? Who has got more sophisticated weaponry? And who is emerging as the next Antichrist, right? If we, this is our fear, this is our anxiety, this is what we're fretting about all day long, looking at the news, looking who's doing this and who's doing what. Let me just say, We've already been told that Satan has been cast down and he is going to cause havoc on the earth and in the church. So it should not come to any surprise to us when we see evil spreading in the world. Just remember that we are on the winning side. We are on the winning side, brethren. Don't lose sight of that. No matter what happens, what happens in the world. Remember also that our destiny is not in his hands, but in the hands of our dear Savior. And as he told us in, in John 16, 33, I have said these things to you that in me you may have peace. In the world you will have tribulation. But take heart, I've overcome the world. So let's rest in him and hope in his promises and live in the victory that he has purchased for us in his death and resurrection. Amen. Let's pray. Who's leading us today?